Well, welcome to The Pond. I'm your host, Vincent Walden, coming to you on the Compliance Podcast Network. Today, I'm with Sam Eastwood, and Sam's a partner in Mayor Brown's litigation practice out of London. He's also a member of the firm's white-collar defense and compliance practice. So welcome, Sam. Thanks, Vince, and good to speaking with you today. Uh, I've been looking forward to this. I'm glad to have you on the show. And, you know, as in typical Walden Pond fashion, I'd first like to open up with a relevant quote from Thoreau. And this time, let's take a global perspective, given uh, your expertise, Sam. Um, he wrote, gosh, 150 years ago, nothing makes the earth seem so spacious as to have friends at a distance. They make, they make the latitudes and the longitudes. So you think about that, Sam, uh, you know, if you think about all the global investigations that you've done and how many friends and, and perhaps even foes who you investigated, um, tell us about your investigative experience globally and how many friends you've made. Yeah. So uh, I suppose I'd prefer to focus on friends. Um, yeah. <laughs> and certainly I've, I've relished the international aspect of my career this past 30 years or so um, and the people I've worked with um, and for. Um, but I have to say my British Airways gold card is a, is a thing of the past, certainly this last year, MR reward schemes. Do you remember them? Yeah. Um, and my pre-Brexit passport is feeling much neglected. Oh, man. Um, yeah. I know where it is. But, but just back to international. I mean, this week, by way of illustration, my focus has been Sweden, Baltic states, uh, Switzerland, China, uh, East and West Africa. Um, and the United States, and, and all without leaving my house in deepest Northamptonshire. So how about that? Wow. Yeah. So when, when do you sleep, I guess, is when <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of time zones that you're covering. Yeah. yeah, no doubt. Well, let's just jump right in. And I'd like to start off with giving the audience a bit of your background and how you got to be in your leadership role at Mayor Brown. Yeah. So I'm a litigator at heart, um, always with, with an international emphasis. Um, with a strong interest in the development of the litigation funding market, which I, I helped pioneer. I was involved in, in that in its early days in the UK. Um, in the last 12, or year, 12 years or so, my practice has centred on fraud and anti-corruption related work. Um, although, as we might explore, I am increasingly drawn to the emerging challenges of business and human rights, which I believe our practice at Mayor Brown is well placed to advise on. There were probably three catalysts back in 2008. So I'm taking you back 12 years. The, sure. the first was an observation that my US counterparts were really busy doing FCPA related investigations. And yet in Europe, we were not seeing the same levels of activity. Um, and then I had a former associate who worked for one of the US law firms involved in the Siemens investigation, which resulted in their 1.6 billion settlement. I which remember. at the time seemed eye-popping, and I, I suppose it still is, but I, I used to talk to her about her experience. Um, a second catalyst, I suppose, was I was interested in the, in the discussions around the reform of the UK anti-corruption legislation, which ultimately resulted in the Bribery Act. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought this presented a valuable opportunity to talk to clients about emerging legal risk, and, and that legal risk did indeed emerge. And, and the third catalyst... Um, was I persuaded Lord Wolfe, who was a former Lord Chief Justice um, and BAE's General Counsel, to talk about the BAE Wolfe Report. And I don't know whether you recall that. 
Vince. Yeah. Um, but the Wolf Report set out standards of best eth ethical practice. It was commissioned by BAE. It was a response to their much publicised Al Yammar problems. Um, and I invited clients to the event and it was a sellout. Um, and I suppose mm. I thought at that stage, I, I thought I was onto something, as indeed I was. Um, so, so now, sort of winding forwards, I, I'm an investigation lawyer first and foremost. Um, but that's underpinned by a real interest in, in the proactive compliance aspects of my work. You know, I haven't, I have not read the BA, the Wolf Report, but I bet you you can Google it, right? Is it out there on, I can. Yeah, look, it's, I, it's really, it's really important. And one of the, yeah, one of the sounds interesting. interesting things about that is the, is the transparency. So I think one sure. of the trends I see is, is that companies are sort of publishing their own works, but this was a report on looking forwards, not backwards hmm. on companies should do in terms of their international markets. And I think it, it, it remains true today. Much of the sort of wisdom there is, is still good reading. Interesting. So you, you, know, you mentioned transparency and I noticed that you sit on the board of Transparency International's UK division. And I'd be curious, again, what are some of the things that you're seeing out of the UK world from transparency's uh, perspective? What are the trends that you're seeing both in you know, your work at Mayor Brown and or some of the objectives that Transparency International is working on. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll touch on both. I mean, thank you for raising my my role at Transparency International, which is important to me. It's a, it's a global movement which which works in over a hundred countries promoting transparency, accountability, and corruption. Uh, and the UK chapter, of which I'm a board member, is the largest individual country chapter, um, and they champion two important global initiatives: one on defence. And the other, which is really important in, in these sort of COVID times, healthcare. Um, so wearing my TI hat, um, I would highlight a, a number of, of topics. One is, um, is the need for more fulsome disclosure of how companies um, report on the operation of their compliance programmes. Uh, so last year, I contributed to a report which is entitled Open Business. And that report explores the business case for corporate transparency around governance and anti-corruption and it offers guidance and best practice. And it also, I suppose it highlights where companies are doing, uh, are, are, are best disclosing their programs. But I think there is pressure for more disclosure and that pressure comes from a number of quarters, uh, not least investors. The second area of interest is how do you measure the effectiveness of a corporate's approach to anti-corruption? Um, and maybe we'll touch on that when we come to data analytics. Yeah, that's one of my passions. <laughs> but TI have got, a, have got a white paper on this, um, which they'll be publishing next month. Um, company ownership, I think, is another big theme for Transparency International. Um, and it's one that is, is getting some traction. So there is definitely an international trend towards promoting and implementing publicly accessible registers of company beneficial ownership. Um, so I know that in the US, there's recently been the Corporate Transparency Act, which is certainly a move in the right direction, although I don't think that the registers under that act are going to be publicly available, which they are in the UK um, and they will be in overseas territories. Um, I think there's also a focus on victims, which probably comes out of the interest in, in company beneficial ownership, but certainly TI and governments generally are quite focused on who are the victims of, of these corruption incidents and, and how are we going to get money out of the kleptocrats? Mm. 
And, and finally, and it's a subject I think we've discussed in the past, um, Vince, collective action um, is of real interest to me. It, it's certainly a priority for Transparency International, but the general sense is that, you know, companies won't be able to address systemic corruption by themselves. And um, there's a need for collaboration within, uh, well, with other companies, with NGOs and with governments. Um, um, so those, are, that's the sort of TI theme. Very um, cool. Uh, I, I don't know whether it'd be helpful. I, I've got a sort of Mayor Brown perspective for your, for your audience, which, which might be worth dwelling no, on. No, please do. Please do um, as well. So, I mean, up until now, I suppose I focused on sort of TI, but much of that um, is certainly relevant to my role at Mayor Brown. But if I was to look forwards um, at the beginning of 2021, I would say um, I think there is scope for improving whistleblowing programmes. Um, and I think that would resound with your audience. Um, and certainly in Europe, the EU whistleblowing directive is going to reinforce the case for increased investment in that area. Um, uh, I think that external auditors um, are increasingly under pressure, uh, sometimes unreasonably so, um, for failing to spot fraud and compliance issues. But there is going to be, there's likely to be reform, certainly in the UK, um, which is going to put more focus on the auditor's responsibilities relating to fraud and compliance risk, and that will have an impact on companies, and we're already seeing that. Um, and certainly, I think in investigations, the, the sort of external auditor dynamic can be really important in terms of how they want the company to respond to the incident. Right. Um, so, and then I think there'll be, there'll be more emphasis on personal responsibility of directors. I don't think it's completely unrealistic that there'll be a SOX type regime in the UK. That will make a difference. Um, uh, and that comes out of a Bryden review um, last year. Um, I think there'll be more monitors outside the US and we're already seeing a bit of that. Um, and, and you and I are believers in data analytics and we'll, we'll talk about that. That's interesting. Great, you know, great summary of kind of global compliance trends and risks. And I think that's what we're, uh, that's what we're going to be titling this session of the podcast. So that was perfect. Um, you know, speaking of keeping that global theme uh, running, you've done a lot of cross-border investigations um, spanning from Africa, Middle East, Asia, the Nordic regions, uh, and even Latin America. And I'd be curious, you know, when I was reading your bio, I'd be curious about some of the unique challenges or best stories uh, in, in a particular region uh, or even hot spots that you're seeing develop that uh, compliance professionals in 20, as they think about their programs in 2021, need to be uh, aware of as they do their risk assessments for the year. Yeah, I, I don't know whether I can give you stories, but I can give you challenges. Um, sure. And I'll give and I'll give you four. And, and I think the first challenge, which certainly um, is very relevant to the international perspective that you highlighted, is communication. Uh, I, I think communication within the professional team, which will be lawyers and forensic accountants, um, but also with the client. I think you know, the problems that arise from coordinating investigation efforts across cultures, languages, and international borders are, 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 are really challenging. Um, and, uh, and what do I think about that? I suppose a detailed plan at the outset can help to address that um, uh, uh, and, and working closely, in my case, with correspondent lawyers who are able to, to, who are able to help, I suppose, with that local, local insight right. as well. Um, 
so that really underpins everything. I think, I think investigations can be very alien for clients. Um, they have to feel that they're in control. I think the communication element is key. Um, otherwise, um, I would talk about legal privilege, wouldn't I? Um, uh, I think the answer is there are certain, certainly distinct um, uh, similarities between the UK and the US, but when you move beyond the UK, the US and other, and, and other civil law jurisdictions, common law jurisdictions, there are some marked differences and that's important. Um, I think employment legislation and rights um, and navigating the differences there um, is, is a real challenge. And, and then finally, and this is your subject, Vince, um, data protection and the, 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 the way in which data is collected, processed um, and transferred um, uh, is getting more and more challenging. The, the GDPR has been a game changer, but there are plenty of other complex data protection laws elsewhere. And, and a real concern, I should say, about, about the US as a regime as well in the context of, of data, and that's one that that I'm sure Alvarez and Marcel are, are sensitive to as well. Yeah, you know, exploring that last topic that you, men you mentioned, you know, for U.S. companies, there's almost, or for international companies, I should say, there's a little bit of a fear of moving data to the U.S. from a discoverability perspective that uh, you and I have talked about in the past. And um, I think, you know, everybody, most compliance professionals are aware of it, but for those compliance professionals in the U.S., um, it is something to think about when you're when you're working with your international colleagues that there is a little bit of concern um, and it, it might not just be a little bit a lot of concern about when data comes to the u.s could it be discoverable by u.s regulators as well yeah I, and i suppose i say don't underestimate right concern and and provide provide some optionality um and 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 we've talked about this but i mean data doesn't have to be transferred to the u.s you can Post it in any number of, of other jurisdictions. So I think I think the issue can be resolved, but it's important to recognise it. Yeah, keep it in mind. Well, um, you know, let, let's move on to that topic of data analytics and um, you know the use of data-driven compliance and analytics and investigations is is now a hot topic more than ever, especially given so many people have been remotely working. Um, you know, having that transparency into the data. Um, is a great way to continue to do audits. Um, you know, the audience knows that that's something I talk about a lot, but I'd love to get your uh, perspectives on some of the more practical applications for the use in data analytics, um, as you see resonating with your clients. Um, what are your thoughts on what we, what are you seeing in terms of trends and uses of analytics? Yeah, I should. My, I mean, I, I'm a believer. Um, uh, I've always used data analytics in investigations. Um, I've always used data analytics in risk assessments. Um, I mean, that's a sort of tailored ad hoc use of data analytics. Um, but I'm really interested in the, in the proactive monitoring opportunity mm -hmm. afforded integrating data analytics into the everyday operation of the compliance program. Um, and I suppose what I would say is not many of my clients do it right now. Um, uh, and there are a whole host of reasons for that. But I think that's going to change. Back to my sort of themes for 2021, uh, we are having good discussions uh, with clients. Uh, the technology's improved. Um, I think the costs are going down. Regulators expect it. Um, and a reactive approach to compliance can be really expensive. Um, so, I mean, let me think of a story. I was listening yesterday to the head of anti-corruption at HS2. So HS2 is the company that's been charged by the UK government 
to build a rather controversial and incredibly expensive railway in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, the budget, the budget is, is $100 billion plus. Wow. And the expectation is in a, in a, in a project like that, um, even in the UK, you've got to be looking at a sort of at a, at a fraud potential of something between 5 to 10%. Um, and the head of anti-corruption has persuaded his board, you know, given the figures, um, that there is, there is a sense in having some investment around data analytics to try and proactively manage and address that risk. I think he's right. Um, Certainly, I think it would pay for itself, given those types of dollar well, volumes. Funny you should say that. In, wow. in, his, in his slideshow, which I'm happy to share with, with you, if not with your audience, um, he certainly made reference to the fact that he was exploring with providers the possibility of some form of, of cost-free solution or, or some form of sharing benefit. And I think that, that, that's really interesting. I mean, we are looking at cost savings. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Typically, uh, it's always fun to find hidden money. And, and typically, at least when I, when I deploy these solutions for clients, if I can't pay for myself, then it's, I'm doing something wrong because, again, the volume's so high, you'll always find stuff. So, uh, good point. Well, listen, we have, we have time for one last question, and it's one that I, I, I like to kind of always ask um, and get your perspectives on. For our legal and compliance and investigative audience out there, uh, what advice should they, what advice can you give them? particularly as they are focused on their goal setting and plans for 2021 to make an impact in their organization. So um, this is a European perspective and I appreciate most of your audience is, is US based, but I'll give you, I'll give you a key challenge for 2021 and that is, uh, or the all clients, um, do you have an effective human rights compliance program? Um, mm. Uh, this is no longer a nice to have, it's an essential, or it will be an essential, and it certainly is an emerging element of effective risk management. Um, and I would highlight a number of trends which reinforce that. One is, is, is an increase in, in, in sort of press attention and, and media-focused investigations. Uh, example, Boohoo PLC in the UK, garment manufacturer, a story back in July, um, about treatment of workers in the UK, not so very far away from where I live, that mm. resulted in, in, a, in a 50% decline in share price and a very significant investigation and a whole lot of related activity. I think consumers in these sort of COVID days are becoming more ethically minded. So yeah. only this morning, the UK, the, the BBC reported that the pandemic had led to more ethical and sustainable purchasing. And that means that companies have got to address those concerns. Um, investors, I think, are really important. Um, they're looking for meaningful data um, and they're looking for meaningful disclosure. Um, and if you look at the Boohoo story, which I referenced just now, it mm-hmm. was the investors which played a really important part um, in, in, in terms of demanding action of the company. And then looking beyond sort of soft trends, um, there are laws. Um, so there is a trend across the globe for increasing human rights due diligence laws. Um, so in Europe, um, there is a legislative proposal on a EU-wide mandatory human rights due diligence law. Um, and that will oh. contain um, and it would apply to a non-EU company doing business in the EU. So what, is, what does it mean? It means that actually you know, when these laws are introduced, companies will be expected 
to conduct human rights due diligence on the impact of their business activities broadly construed and to report on that. Um, so what does it mean um, if anyone's taking any notes? Um, what, 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 what does it mean? I think that, that companies, all companies in all uh, sectors should monitor those legislative developments. Um, I think they should carry out a human rights impact assessment or certainly make inquiries as to what exactly that might entail. And I think there's lot, lots we can draw from the anti-corruption world here. Um, That's interesting. And then they need to look at, look at sort of countermeasures and certainly um, communication and training and complaints mechanisms and speak up programs are all important. And then I would say they need to look at whether the board is, is, is adequately equipped to understand and deal with this new emerging risk. So some clients are now looking at appointing human rights councils to support the board to provide that level of insight and challenge, which um, they might not otherwise be, be well equipped to do. And then finally, back to my world, I, I think there is, a, there, is a, there is a good case for reviewing the role, resources and expertise of the legal and compliance functions. Um, I mean, the world of human rights and sustainability is up until now largely fallen to the sustainability teams. Uh, I think legal and compliance, given the increased interest by investors, uh, the increased legal obligations, I think legal and compliance are going to have to get a handle on, on what the companies are saying about what they do and, and whether in fact um, they, they meet uh, some of the sort of published statements and aspirations which one reads about so commonly in, in sustainability statements. Wow, you know, I think that compli the compliance professional role will continue to expand because, uh, again, no doubt human rights. I, I, I kind of have a hunch that that's going to be the next FCPA or UK Bribery Act over the next 10 years. Um, you know, corruption is always going to be there, but uh, human rights is, is definitely one. Another one, you know, it's funny, you mentioned human rights from the, from the European perspective. Um, we're also seeing in the U.S., there's a lot of environmental talks right now and nowadays and, you know, in sustainability around environmental, et cetera. Um, so I think compliance professionals are going to have a lot on their plate. Um, again, in the U S with the new administration, with COVID, there's so much going on. Yes. And, and ultimately I, I would badge the environmental issue as a human rights issue. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> ultimately yeah, it's a subset of, I think it is, and ultimately you can look at corruption as a human rights issue. No, yeah. look, I, yeah. I agree. I talked about sort of the development of my career, and certainly I, I was reasonably early on into the sort of corruption dynamic. I, I see real parallels um, now in terms of, of, of developments in the human rights sphere. Yeah. But, um, Vince, look, I, 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 I've enjoyed this session. I'm, I'm not going to end this without, without coming back to you with a thorough quote. Um, because I now know more about Thoreau than I did at the beginning of the week. And I've, <laughs> I've, I've got this for you. So you started with a quote and I get to end with one. Um, so it's this one. You must live in the present, launch yourself on every wave and find your eternity in every moment. I thought that was rather nice. Oh, oh I love it. You know, the good news about Thoreau, other than the fact that we share the last name of his, his book on Walden Pond, yeah. um, <laughs> uh, he's got so many good quotes out there and again, for a man who lived 150 years ago, um, I can usually always align some quote of his to the speaker topic. 
that we're doing. And I think that's exactly it. Sometimes it's inspiring. Sometimes it's comical, but uh, that's a very inspiring, it's a great quote. And I uh, I, yes, I don't know what you would have made of the, of the Capitol Hill riots last week, but I know that civil, civil disobedience was one of his, yeah. one of his themes. He might, he might've been, uh, yeah, he, he was, uh, yeah, he was, he has a lot of writing on civil disobedience. So yeah, I don't know if he'd be cheering it or, or poo-pooing it, but, uh, I think most of us are poo-pooing it here in the States. So, um, Sam, thank you very much for your time. That was a fascinating discussion and, um, and gives us all kind of a lot to think about as we look at our 2021 plates and what we want to do this year. I really kind of in, in, intrigued by human rights. It's always been in the back of, it's always been in the back of my mind, et cetera. It's a huge supply chain issue. And I think as we're going to see more regulatory enforcement globally, as you're mentioning, but I think even in the U.S. now under our, you know, under the Biden administration, I think that's going to come, probably come more to fruition. So we'll see. And I think ultimately that's a good thing. I think so. And I, and I think that uh, I mean, companies despair at yet another, another risk and another problem, another burden. But I yeah. think there's, lots, there's a lot of leverage that can be drawn from existing processes, systems um, and expertise. Um, and, 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 and so don't approach it in a sort of siloed way. I think that the, the, the existing structure can help to address this, this emerging problem. Yep. Well, Sam, we are out of time, my friend, but uh, thank you very much for your time. And uh, let's get you back on the show in a couple, a couple months uh, as new things emerge. So look forward to having you back on the show. I'd be delighted. Thanks. Thank you, Sam.